Broadcasting from Rancho Cucamonga, California, this is A History of California. And welcome back to the show. This here is the show's first appendix episode. That is, it's going to be a shorter, much more focused look at a specific event or person in history. And I wanted to talk about this event in particular, because in doing research for the next proper episode on mission ecology, I felt like I couldn't just leave this particular story of indigenous resistance behind. Even if I couldn't really find a place for it last episode, when discussing indigenous agency more broadly. So today will just be a one-off about the assassination of Franciscan missionary Andres Quintana by baptized Ohlone residents of Mission Santa Cruz in October of 1812. The specific version of the story I'm going to relate was originally told by a man named Lorenzo Asisara, who was interviewed by historian Thomas Savage in the summer of 1877. Savage was part of a team of historians under the employment of Hubert Bancroft, and together they would produce a six-volume history of early California roughly a decade later. Asisara, who was born eight years after the assassination, was the son of an Ohlone neophyte resident at Mission Santa Cruz, situated at the northern end of Monterey Bay. Asisara's father was purported to be an eyewitness to Quintana's slaying and recounted the story to his son who then passed it on to Savage decades later. Rather than being written down, the story was passed down as an oral narrative, which is important to keep in mind when we discuss the later controversy surrounding Asisar's account of the murder. But let's stop putting it off and let's get to killing this priest. Lorenzo Asisar's father, one of the first indigenous people brought to Mission Santa Cruz after its founding in 1791, was given the Christian name Venancio Asar upon his baptism at age 20, and by 1812, he was working as the mission's master gardener. On Friday, October 11th, he and about 10 others were summoned to the house of Julian, the second mission gardener, by another baptized Ohlone man known as Donato. A Franciscan priest, the doomed Andres Quintana, had inflicted a cruel brand of corporal punishment on Donato, by flogging him with a whip lined with metal wire, and Donato now sought revenge for his barbarous treatment by the Spanish Padre. Joining Venancio and Donato at Julian's place was Antonio, the mission cook, and Lino, Quintana's eldest page and the first person born at the mission to survive past infancy. After hearing of Donato's flogging by the priest, Lino addressed everyone else in the room and said, quote, the first thing we should do today is see that the Padre no longer punishes the people in that manner. We aren't animals. The Padre says in his sermons that God does not command these punishments, but only examples and doctrine. Tell me now, what shall we do with the Padre? We cannot chase him away, nor accuse him before the judge, because we do not know who commands him to do with us as he does. Lino's own father, 
who was also present at the clandestine meeting, responded, quote, Let's kill the Padre without anyone being aware, not the servants, nor anyone, except us that are here present, unquote. And so the vague conspiracy coalesced into a murder plot. They agreed on a simple plan. The gardener Julian, who was often getting sick, would act as bait to entice Father Quintana into Julian's house, where the conspirators would then attack and kill him. They decided to act the very next day, because in two days, Quintana was planning on following Sunday Mass with a demonstration of his Cuarta de Hierro, a new whip that came tipped with iron. The next evening, the conspirators were set and ready to act. Father Quintana was summoned to the house of the fake sick Julian and stayed a moment to tend to his ailing parishioner. But instead of just ambushing the priest there, the conspirators decided to hide behind a thicket of trees outside and wait for the father to emerge from the house. But when Quintana did leave, the conspirators chickened out and let the priest stride right past them and back to his house. And so Julian's wife returned to Quintana's residence and turned on the waterworks, lamenting that Julian was close to death and required the priest's presence immediately. Quintana obliged the crying woman and returns to Julian's house, conspirators still hiding behind the dense thicket. But when Quintana left the house a second time, the conspirators again failed to act and Quintana returned to his own house unscathed. By now, I'm sure, rolling her eyes in irritation at all these men who were failing to follow through on their threats from the night before, Julian's wife returned to Quintana's residence to attempt to draw him out for murder attempt number three. By this point in the evening, the sun was well below the Pacific Ocean horizon, and nighttime darkness had begun to blanket Mission Santa Cruz. Quintana was in the middle of eating dinner when Julian's wife came to him the third time and so setting his utensils down and gathering the materials used to administer last rites, Quintana called Tolino and two other pages, who were also in on the murder plot, to escort the priest with torchlight back to Julian's house. There, he performed the end-of-life sacraments and told Julian's wife to, please, for the love of God, don't bother him again that night. Then he and the torch-bearing pages turned around and started back to the priest's residence. It was finally Lino who gathered the courage to act. Aware that they had reached the thicket the rest of the conspirators were hiding behind, Lino suddenly turned around and grabbed Quintana by the frock, telling the startled priest, quote, Stop here, father. You must speak for a moment. As Lino spoke, more conspirators emerged from behind the trees and shrubs, and the two younger pages abandoned Quintana, running off with their torches and leaving him there surrounded in the dark. The fearful priest turned to his eldest page and asked him, Oh, my son, what are you going to do to me? To which Lino answered, Your assassins will tell you. Now really scared, Quintana frantically questioned, What have I done to you, children, for which you would kill me? Lino's father answered for the conspirators, quote, Because you have made a cuarta de hierro, unquote. And then he asked the priest why he had made the iron-tipped whip to begin with. Quintana defended himself by saying the whip would only be used on transgressors and rule breakers. When someone in the back of the group shouted, quote, Well, you're in the hands of those evil ones, so make your peace with God. Unquote. Quintana dropped to his knees and began begging for his life, pleading that he would leave Santa Cruz and never return if they would just let him live. To this, one of the conspirators responded, quote, 
Now you won't be going to any part of the earth from here, Father. You are going to heaven, unquote. Impatient grumblings arose from some near the back, so they finally asphyxiated Father Quintana by shoving his own frock down his throat. Wanting to, I suppose, cover up the real cause of death, one of the conspirators went ahead and cut off one of the priest's testicles, which, yeah, would leave behind a distractingly large amount of blood loss. Having posthumously partially castrated the deceased priest, the conspirators tracked down the younger pages who had run off, and with their help arranged Quintana's body in his bed, as if he had fallen asleep normally. Now with all the conspirators gathered in the dead Padre's house, Lino handed over to them the keys to every building in the mission, and they immediately began looting the father's stockroom for money or other valuable products like honey and white sugar. Sometime around this point in the night, the conspirators decided that what this auspicious occasion really needed was not just unimpeded looting, but a big-ass party. So they grabbed the keys and unlocked the doors to the unmarried men's dormitory, quietly woke the sleeping men, and instructed them all to go meet at the very same thicket of trees where the murder had originally gone down. Then they went to the unmarried women's dormitory, unlocked the doors, and told them all the same thing. With the living embodiment of Catholic discipline dead in his own bed, the men and women gathered there under the trees that night, usually cloistered away from each other, let loose and broke out into some celebratory group sex. Needing to take a break from this orgy, Lino decided to saunter back over to the priest's house to check on their handiwork, at which point he discovered the priest was, in fact, still breathing. Lino rushed back to the party and dragged the rest of the conspirators back over to the priest's house, and just as they arrived, the priest began to regain consciousness. That wouldn't last long, though, as the conspirators finally finished Quintana off by smashing and severing his other remaining testicle, which I again assume resulted in enough blood loss to be actually fatal this time. Donato, the neophyte who had been whipped by Quintana and had first initiated the conspiracy, marched back to the party, waving around Quintana's severed testicle like a trophy of war. Whatever loot they couldn't carry on them, the conspirators buried in that same orchard, and at around two in the morning, the liberated mission residents quietly returned back to their dormitories. A few hours later, the sun began to rise on this mid-October morning, and people began to gather around the chapel for Sunday Mass, but they also noticed Father Quintana never came out to ring the mission bells. Lino, who also assumed his usual Sunday morning duties as if nothing had happened the night before, played dumb and pretended to not know why the door to the Padre's house was locked, or why he was running so scandalously late. Later that morning, the corporal of the mission guard arrived and commanded Lino to get into the Padre's house whichever way possible. So Lino used a key he had hidden away to get into the house from the back, and made a big show of being horrified by what he found. To quote Asisara directly, The poor elderly neophytes and many other Indians who had never suspected that the father was killed thought that he had died suddenly. They cried bitterly. Lino was roaring inside the father's house like a bear. Unquote. The deaths of Franciscan missionaries that came about suddenly or through unexplained ailments were generally treated with suspicion by the colonial administration of Alta California, 
And so friars from other missions were dispatched to Santa Cruz to conduct an investigation and funeral for Father Quintana. The investigating priests discovered the genital mutilation inflicted on Quintana and deduced that this was his cause of death, but rather than documenting the castration and their findings, their Catholic quote-unquote modesty prevented them from including it in their official findings. For a couple of years there, it seemed as if Donato, Lino, and the rest of the conspirators were going to live out their lives without word of their plot becoming public. That's not how it would end, though. Two years later, Spanish soldiers who had learned the local Ohlone dialect overheard two women, both of whom were married to conspirators in the murder plot, discussing the wealth they had acquired from the post-murder looting. A second investigation was launched, and according to Asisada, quote, The result of all this was that the accused were sent to San Francisco, and among them was my father. There they were judged, and those who killed the padre were each sentenced to receive the novenadio, nine days in succession, of fifty lashes for each one, and to serve in public works at San Diego. Asisara concludes his account of the homicide, stating, quote, The Spanish padres were very cruel toward the Indians. They abused them very much. They had bad food, bad clothing, and they made them work like slaves. I was also subjected to that cruel life. The Padres did not practice what they preached in the pulpit. Unquote. Lorenzo Asisara's telling was republished by the journal California History in 1989, in histories of the mission period that paraphrase or mention Quintana's 1812 death will usually cite Asisara as a source. But should it be taken at face value? Most historians that do include the Asisara account also qualify it with some remark like, the facts of the case remain hazy, or something to that effect. Some of Asisara's details are so outrageous they almost approach the territory of wacky. But two years after the narrative's republication, a more substantial critique against it was levied by USC historian Doyce Nunez Jr. To put it simply, many details of Asisara's story are not supported by written documents produced at the time of Quintana's death. For instance, colonial investigators found no evidence of any theft of Quintana's property, nor did Franciscan rules even allow missionary priests to personally handle hard cash, thus adding doubt to the vengeance-based looting that Asisara describes. Franciscan regulations also limited both how severely and in which manner an indigenous person at a mission could be corporally punished. And four years after Quintana's death, the relatively liberal colonial governor, Pablo Vicente de Sola, launched an investigation into the general problem of, of Franciscan cruelty to the neophytes. Aside from testimony from those directly involved in the Quintana death conspiracy, no evidence was uncovered that Quintana was particularly cruel or had used a whip tipped with iron. Finally, death by castration would leave behind a lot of forensic evidence in terms of blood loss, none of which was mentioned in a report written by Lieutenant Jose Maria Estudillo two weeks after Quintana's death. Quote, no evidence of violence was found, wrote Lieutenant Estudillo, who also noted that Quintana was already in ill health and, quote, was unable to even dress himself, unquote. 
After the conspirators' plot had been uncovered two years later, a second investigation was launched, to which then-mission president Narciso Duran concluded, quote, Those of the mission murdered Quintana in so barbarous a manner that I doubt if such cruelty has ever been resorted to in the most barbarous nations, for they tortured him impudentis, that is, involving the genitalia, and suffocated him at the same time with cloths used in administering extreme unction, unquote. That lines up better with the gist of Asisara's account, but still leaves large holes in his narrative. Does that mean that Asisara is full of it? Not necessarily. Alta California in general, and Santa Cruz in particular, were on the furthest northwestern fringes of Spanish imperial control, and though officials in Madrid or Mexico City could print as many dictates as they liked, that didn't guarantee that they would be followed up here in the colonial frontier. For example, though Franciscan priests were forbidden from handling gold and silver, journals from the U.S. trading ship the Mercury document gold and silver being given directly to Franciscan missionaries in California in order to balance out trade accounts. Indigenous people also testified that some Franciscan priests exceeded the official written limits on corporal punishment, hence the launching of Governor Sola's investigation into cruelty to begin with. But beyond the specific point of Franciscan priests disregarding written regulations, there is a larger danger in over-relying on written sources when constructing history, especially in a colonial context in which the invading power was also the one doing nearly all of the writing. Edward Castillo, who has written many articles and books on the California mission era and its treatment of the indigenous populations, argues, quote, Historians and other scholars working in the area of cultural conflict in an exploitive colonial setting can hardly expect native accounts to conform explicitly with documents authored by colonial authorities. To do so would assume that only one truth and one reality existed, that of the colonists." Unquote. Historian Calvin Martin takes the point further when he says, quote, "...we should quit deluding ourselves about the significance of an explanatory value of such history, for it is essentially white history, white reality, white thought world. As such, it has its place, certainly, but the point is that it has subtly transgressed its explanatory boundaries, to pose as the sole or only valid or only serious explanation of what transpired when the Indians and white men met." Unquote. I agree. The written word has value, but it shouldn't be regarded as automatically more truthful than the spoken word. As Castillo asserts, there is no valid reason to dismiss the handed-down oral accounts of indigenous people who have been direct witnesses to an event, but then readily accept the written accounts of Franciscan friars who hadn't been there. The USC historian Nunes claims that the native Asisara would be biased against the old Franciscan regime at the missions, and therefore his narrative cannot be trusted as objective. But should we then believe that the Franciscans weren't biased? and that those biases, whether in favor of their fellow priests or against the native peoples, wouldn't leak into their written accounts? That is, quite frankly, more difficult to believe than someone getting castrated to death in a context of colonial oppression. 
The written word may be less alterable over time, but that doesn't guarantee it was ever truthful to begin with. And so even if not every detail of Asisara's oral accounts may be accurate, they still provide their own insights into how indigenous survivors of the mission system and their descendants viewed California's first colonial occupiers. In both the act of killing Quintana and its celebratory aftermath, the priest's death was highly sexualized, adding to the murder a facet of active resistance to both the strict enforcement of Catholic sexual discipline on natives in the mission and the simultaneous widespread practice of sexual assault committed by both soldiers and priests. Asisara's account of looting, whether accurate or not, again expresses a vengeful inverse of the colonial economic order, in which material value produced by indigenous labor was exploited by an imperial mission system that materially benefited from it, and so those indigenous workers went to reclaim the wealth their labor had generated in the form of gold, silver, and luxury goods. The secret, conspiratorial nature of the assassination was in no way unique, as we've already seen secret plots at missions San Diego and San Gabriel reach varying degrees of success, as well as secrecy used to help indigenous customs and rituals persevere inside the missions despite the watchful eye of the Catholic order. Lorenzo Asisar's account of Padre Quintana's 1812 killing may not be entirely accurate, but in its bitter resolve and the gleeful, mocking results in the immediate aftermath, it remains entirely honest in displaying the resentment held by indigenous people when the Spaniards came to take Ohlone land.